Welcome to the Growth Cap Podcast, where we chat with CEOs, investors, and other key industry leaders to uncover insights and strategies for accelerating growth and succeeding in business. I'm your host, RJ Lumba. In this episode, we chat with Dr. Vipin Garge, the president and CEO of Altimune, which is a biotech company pioneering the development of intranasal vaccines and therapeutics, including ones that can prevent the transmission of and treat COVID. He has more than three decades of experience in the biotechnology and pharmaceutical industries, with a successful track record building and leading notable private and publicly traded companies. Dr. Garge was named a top 25 biotech CEO of 2021 by the Healthcare Technology Report. He received his PhD in biochemistry in 1982 from the University of Adelaide, Australia, and his Master of Science degree from IARI Nuclear Research. We hope you enjoy the show. Vipin, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. It's a true pleasure and congratulations on being awarded one of the top 25 biotech CEOs by the Healthcare Technology Report. What we typically do here is we start off with a little bit of background so we can introduce you to our audience. Absolutely. Well, thank you for having me on on your program. It's a pleasure to talk to you and tell your audience a little bit about myself and the company. So I'm president and CEO of a biotechnology company called Altimune. And Altimune is based in Gaithersburg, Maryland. I've been at Altimune since November 2018 now, so a couple of years. My background is all in biotech, pharma, mostly small companies, venture-backed, as well as public companies. I've done a couple of IPOs in my career and have sold a couple of companies to large pharma. Worked in many different therapeutic areas, so from cardiovascular to CNS to infectious diseases now. So really, I'm a therapeutic area agnostic. I'm more of a businessman. I have a PhD in biochemistry, so I can understand science. But more importantly, I can figure out then how to put together a package to attract investors into, an, into a scientific story. And that's what drug discovery and development is all about. This space for almost 30 years now. And I've had a great time developing drugs. Uh, I have been responsible for a few drugs on the market. So it's always gratifying to see that when you've been working on a product to ultimately bring that product to patients, it's a very gratifying experience. Thank you for that background. I noticed you have a series of kind of successful endeavors in the biotech field. And you referred to yourself more as at this stage, more as a business executive. When you decided to kind of lead some of these biotech companies, did you tend to want to focus in certain types of drugs, certain types of segments of biotech, or could you almost steer any type of biotech company towards the right path? Yes, I started out as a scientist myself uh, working with proteins. So that naturally led me more towards protein-based drugs. So in my early career, I was working, for instance, I worked on recombinant factor eight, which is a coagulation protein. Uh, that product has been around for many, many years now, but it's purely a protein-based therapy. When the biotech industry first started, we really thought of biotech as proteins. You know, pharma that worked on small molecules and there was biotech that worked on proteins. That distinction is blurred over time. Now, Biotech is really goes based on size of the company and market cap and so on. In fact, everybody wants to call themselves biotech now. Even pharma would rather be called a biotech 
So biotech companies now work on both small molecules as well as on proteins. As my career progressed, I have also sort of made that transition, even though I started out with proteins, I've been working with small molecules as well. So I would say it really depends upon the unmet medical need. That's really what we are trying to solve. We're trying to bring new solutions to patients. It really doesn't matter what therapeutic area that is in. The principles of developing drugs are really applicable across the board. Obviously, you need experts for each one of the therapeutic areas. So we assemble those. We build a team where that expertise can be brought into the team and we can develop drugs for different therapies. The next question I had was, obviously, front and center, you and your team there are focused on a COVID vaccine and potentially having it be more effective than some of the other solutions out there, or maybe better said, more effective in other ways. Can you talk a little bit about Altimmune's COVID solutions, maybe also in comparison to what else is out there? Absolutely. So first of all, We have made, we meaning as a society, as an industry, we've made tremendous progress in developing vaccines. So that's been very gratifying to see. And we're fortunate to be part of the group of companies fighting the pandemic. So very fortunate to be in that situation. What we have is unique or very different from what other people are developing as vaccines. Our vaccine is an intranasal vaccine. So it's based on our proprietary intranasal delivery technology platforms. It's an intranasal vaccine. Every other vaccine, as you know, is an intramuscular injection. So it's given by a shot. We're developing an intranasal vaccine. And if you think about a respiratory virus like SARS-CoV-2, the virus actually enters our body through the nose. It multiplies there, and that's how it attacks the body. So it makes sense to actually also put the vaccine at the source where the virus attacks the body. And that's exactly what we're doing. We think that has some advantages over time. Obviously, intranasal vaccines are more attractive, more patient-friendly, don't have to take a shot. But beyond that, there are actual, technically speaking, there are other advantages because we are able to not only generate serum antibodies that other vaccines do, like intramuscular vaccines, but in addition, we're able to activate another arm of the immune system called mucosal immunity. More importantly, they're activating this mucosal immunity in the nasal cavity, which is where the virus replicates. So the idea is not only we will protect subjects from getting disease and hospitalization and so on, but we will also protect them from actually transmitting the virus. So ultimately, I think we can all agree, if we are going to beat the pandemic, we have to also figure out how to block the transmission of the virus. We think that's where we come in. So we really, what we have is a second-generation vaccine. It's a nasal spray. We think it's going to be a single-dose solution, so a single-dose nasal spray that would not only block the infection and protect people from disease, but will also block transmission. And that can be very attractive, for instance, for children, for pediatric population where children don't like to take shots to begin with. But on top of that, they don't get very ill from the virus, which is a good thing but they can still be infected and they can transmit to others. The blocking transmission is going to be very important. One other thing I would mention about our vaccine, it's very stable. It's room temperature is stable for up to three months. So in other words, you can actually ship it without cold chain. It can be shipped at room temperature. Ultimately, you can imagine that people can actually self-administer it. You don't need a 
trained medical personnel to administer the vaccine. So down the line, there can be a lot of other advantages, not just in the U.S., but around the world where just distribution is going to be a challenge. So we think we have a second generation vaccine that will complement very nicely the existing first generation vaccine. And the million dollar question is here, when do you think it would be available? How far out would it take? Obviously, there's testing that you'd have to go through. Yeah, no, that's a great question. So we are in our first phase of human testing. The good thing about vaccines is that you can learn a lot very quickly. Because even in phase one trials, you can actually measure immunogenicity. So you know, and at this point, we have lots of data based on other vaccines that have gone for approval ahead of us. We know that what kind of immune response we need to generate in order for vaccine to be effective. So we will get that information. Actually, our phase one trials are ongoing and we are expecting data from those studies in the second quarter, which just started today. And then we'll move forward from there, depending upon which direction we go. For instance, we can actually start pediatric studies in parallel with approval in adults. So that's one of the strategy that we pursue. So our plan is to be in late stage clinical trials by the end of the year and have our vaccine available for distribution on commercial scale early next year. That's phenomenal. You know, one thing I've been amazed about with the vaccines that are currently approved by the FDA for emergency use was how quickly some of these companies were able to move Pfizer in combination with BioNTech. And then you had J&J, obviously, and AstraZeneca. And obviously, Altimune is moving very quickly at the same time. What enables you to move so quickly? Is it the scientists that you have that are ready and have experience in the area from the moment that the COVID-19 news was starting to come out? I imagine at that point, you were already starting to think through what you could do on your end. Absolutely. I think that's a great observation. There is no question that the development of a COVID-19 vaccine, there's never been anything like this. To develop a new product, a new pharmaceutical product so fast, it's clearly unprecedented. There are a couple of reasons why that happened. Obviously, we threw everything at it. Our governments, to our companies, to our NGOs, to our agencies, everybody was behind trying to figure out how to find a vaccine as quickly as possible. I would also say that we also got lucky. We also found that this virus is very immunogenic. If it wasn't, we would be in trouble. So the fact that the virus is very immunogenic, you just need to figure out how to get the antigen into the human body. And as soon as you do that, and pretty much everybody has shown that if you can get the antigen into the cells, then our body will react to it appropriately and is able to make antibodies. That's the great. For instance, HIV. We've been working on a vaccine for HIV for now how many decades? Almost 30, 40 years. We don't have a vaccine for HIV. And there are many other examples like that. So yes, we threw everything at it. We were also able to take advantage of some new technology platforms. For instance, messenger RNA. Those are the fastest vaccines. Messenger RNA construct very quickly in the lab. It's a purely synthetic vaccine. So it's much faster than you can start testing it in humans. So it's really a combination of having new technologies that hadn't been tested yet. On top of that, we got lucky because the virus is very immunogenic and our body reacts to it. I think it also teaches us a lesson. Why can't we cure cancer that fast? I think we can. I think we can 
at least certainly cure it faster than we are doing today. So I think you will see that there will be a lot of thinking going forward. How can we accelerate the drug development process? So be safe and effective. I'm not talking about cutting any corners, but I think there are ways to accelerate the entire drug development process, particularly for some of these indications, some of these diseases where there is just no treatment and people are dying. So we need to learn from COVID-19 and apply some of these same principles to other critical diseases for which there is no treatment. And I'm curious to get your view. Is there any considerations about the difference in the type of vaccine? So would you tend to steer people towards mRNA versus the J&J versus others that are kind of coming out or in development? How do you kind of look at the landscape of vaccines available? So that's a great question. Based on the early data, and I emphasize that it's early data at this point, all of the vaccines seem to be very effective, or let's call it equally effective. The question is going to be, over time, we'll learn about their durability. Which one lasts long? Are there going to be differences in durability? So that's number one. We'll find out because we're too early to really answer that question because that would dictate which vaccine is better if there is a difference in in duration of the effect. Second question is going to be, if we have to take a vaccine every year, hypothetically speaking, if it's revaccination, every year like flu, then people are going to ask the question, reactogenicity will become. I mean, it's okay to have chills and fever and be out of work for a couple of days once to fight COVID-19. If you have to go through it every year, people are going to want to choose vaccines that are more safe and better tolerated. Convenience comes into play. I mean, how easy it is to take the vaccine, how easy it is to distribute the vaccine. All of those factors will come into play over time. But right now, today, given the choice, I would say any vaccine you can get is better than not having a vaccine. And the good news is they're all pretty effective. That's great to hear. One of the distinctions I recently heard was someone waiting for full FDA approval, because right now it's emergency use. And I think the consensus that I'm hearing is that, well, there's a lot of data that the FDA's decision was based on for the emergency use. So not as much concern that it's not fully approved yet. No, I'm definitely in the latter camp where I believe these vaccines are effective. They're safe. There's still things we're learning about them. There's always long-term follow-up and we'll learn about all of that. But the FDA has done a phenomenal job in being a partner with industry and in trying to figure out how to get these vaccines to people as quickly as possible. One question, as we talked about earlier, you've been successful through a variety of situations in a leadership capacity. And I'm sure you've kind of, by this time, have finely tuned the way you're able to kind of lead organizations. But are there two or three kind of key tenets that you keep in mind, both as you assume the helm of a new organization and also as you figure out how the people are operating and to keep the ship steady and going forward? Absolutely, absolutely. A couple of things come to mind. First of all, biotechnology or drug development is a very high-risk proposition. Most things don't work out. So you have to have the mindset that can deal with that. And how do you sort of manage that risk while still making progress? So it's really important to be flexible when you're working in biotech space because things are going to change. Some things will work out, some will not. So flexibility is the key from day one. As you get more data, it's all science-driven. 
you fine-tune your strategy and you change your strategy. If you are not willing to do that, chances are you're not going to be successful. That's kind of a macro thing you have to keep in mind. I think the other thing that's very important in this industry is quality of people. As a CEO of a company, I can't do everything. I obviously am not trained to do everything that you're required to do to develop a drug. So for me, throughout my career, the key consideration for my success has been people I surround myself with. And so my philosophy has always been surround yourself with people who are better than you are. Power them and great things will happen. So you can't really manage everything yourself. You can't run clinical trials yourself. You can't design them yourself. You can't manufacture it yourself. You need great people who have done this before, who are experts at it. And really, that's the formula to success in in, in pharmaceutical industry. I know we're coming up on time here, but I like to ask our podcast guests a couple uh, final questions. One is, can you tell us about a challenging time that you encountered? And it could have been early in your career, it could have been mid-career or or more recently, and how you were able to overcome that challenging time. Well, gee, there's so many of them. As I said, we are in the business where there are more failures than successes. So you remember those failures. I remember two companies ago, we were developing a drug for a GI gastrointestinal disorder. And it's a very difficult area. There's a lot of placebo response in those types of trials. And we had a drug in development and our data came out at the end of our clinical trials was terrible. Basically, the drug had no effect or it was as good as placebo. So that is a setback that you never forget. I will never forget the day that data became available. And then the next day when we announced the data, our stock dropped by 90%. So to go through that experience, and in spite of that, you know, you have to go through the day, you have to talk to all your investors, you have to explain what happened and you know, what you're planning to do about it. So that kind of experience teaches you there will be good things, there will be bad things, and it's not going to last forever. It's always going to get better. But I think you have to be ready for facing those kind of situations when you're dealing with such high risk and high reward value propositions. And last question, is there someone that you've really looked up to in your career and that you keep in mind as you're kind of in that leadership position and making decisions and thinking through how you want to operate and go through the day? Is there someone that you've really looked up to that has helped kind of provide guidance? Absolutely. So I'm an entrepreneur at heart. I, I love being an entrepreneur. I like to promote entrepreneurship. To me, what entrepreneurs do is find a problem and figure out how to solve that problem. It could be in different fields, but ultimately, that is the value proposition. You find a problem, you assemble a team, and you solve a problem. So the person that I think of all the time who actually would not be typically considered an entrepreneur is a scientist, actually an American scientist that I saw his work when I was growing up as a child in India. His name is Norman Borlaug. He was the father of the Green Revolution. And he saved billions of lives around the globe. People have forgotten now. This was back in 1960. Figured out how to make countries like India and all over the world in Africa self-sufficient in terms of food production. So he traveled all over the world. He solved a big problem. And that's an incredible product that he created for the whole society to, to benefit. Not very different from vaccines, if you think about it. So ultimately, it's all about solving a problem. And as so many people, good scientists can solve problems, 
to me, they're all entrepreneurs at heart. That's a great answer and a wonderful note to end on. I can see how he has kind of been an inspiration, just the boldness of the vision keeps one kind of focused and driven. So Vipin, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. And I know our audience will find this very insightful. Thank you. It's my pleasure. 